Uh, thank you very much. I think we'll get started. Six thirty-two uh, at the uh, Institute of Public Affairs, which of which I'm now director. We we do try and start on time, and also pertinently end on time. So you'll be leaving here fairly briskly and with a spring, as it were, in your intellectual step at eight o'clock. And the Institute of Public Affairs is based at LSE. And what we've noticed here, especially our new director, Craig Calhoun, is that we have events and we have research. But at LSE's IPA, we're now trying to connect the two. And we're trying to develop a program of what might be called applied research. So we're trying to take ideas and we're trying to run with them. And we're trying to make something off them. And we're trying to bring together an intellectual community that is, after all, fortuitously supported by the state in a way that actually connects up with and exchanges knowledge with members of the public. And this is part of one of those initiatives. And the initiative is about reflecting on what a one-nation Britain is. Uh, For those of you who know your schoolbook history, the kind of history that Mr. Gove, Mr. Gove, who spoke in our first One Nation debate, hankers after, that kind of history. You remember that Benjamin Disraeli developed this notion of two nations. And so One Nation has been for decades an indicator of a conservative approach that is rooted in unity and compassion. And recently, the Labour Party, through its relatively new leader, Ed Miliband, sought to capture the language of one nation as a way of framing an ethical basis for action. So we have two parties competing about what it means to be a one-nation Britain. And we have the Lib Dems. I'm under strict instructions not to be rude about the Lib Dems because there are podcasts. But they would regard themselves, in fairness to them, as kind of inherently one nation in that they transcend party divide. So this is the third of our series. We've had John Crudis and David Davis, Labour and Conservative. We've had Michael Gove, as I've said already, and Lord Morris Glassman, Conservative and Labour. But we've also had input in an important way that matters for us from the NGO sector and from the university sector. We had, in particular, the LSE sector, Alan Sked, who was the founder of UKIP, speaking on One Nation Britain at the last event, and we had Francesca Klug, a colleague and friend of mine from the Centre for the Study of Human Rights here, professorial research fellow, talking about cosmopolitanism and one nation. And this is the third. We're going to run with this through the next academic year. There will be conferences, engagement, bringing together academics, and specifically LSE academics, with people from NGOs, with intellectuals, and with politicians. And we want to deepen an understanding of what one nation means. So this is the kind of thing we're going to be doing at IPA. This is our flagship event. Uh, We are delighted to see you here in such numbers. July is kind of dead at university, and we were concerned about whether we should continue through July, and this is a tremendous vindication of our judgment that there was a hunger to continue this debate through into close to what we in university still call the long vacation. We've got... Three speakers, and then we've got a discussion. And the speakers start 
with John Denham. I'll introduce them together and then hand over, as it were, to a succession of speakers and then the Q&A and the discussion and the wrap-up. John is somebody that I've worked with and known for many years. He was very supportive of an earlier program that I did on human rights and national security, hosting an interesting event in Parliament of a not dissimilar type. Elected first as a member of Parliament, the House of Commons, in 1992. He's been in various governmental departments. It's an extraordinarily important thing to say, and I will say it, modest though he is and wouldn't draw attention to it, that John Denham, in 2003, a Labour minister in the Home Office, clamouring up that greasy pole, resigned in protest at the Gulf War. Didn't make a great deal of noise about it, but resigned uh, on what it struck me was an important point of principle. Returned later to Gordon Brown's cabinet uh, and was cabinet minister, uh, communities and local government until May 2010. Uh, I think it's really sad that John Denham has decided not to stand at the next general election. I was trying to persuade him earlier to change his mind, but uh, he didn't make it as successfully as today by succumbing to the mildest depression from people like me. Uh, he's going to talk about the issues to start with. And then we have uh, an old friend of mine, uh, uh, an intellectual and scholar, Ruth Dudley Edwards, uh, who has, we ask everybody to provide blurbs, you know, normally they don't. Ruth describes herself, I don't know if you did this, Ruth, a religion-friendly atheist, a religion-friendly atheist, teacher, marketing executive, and civil servant before becoming a freelance writer, uh, journalist, broadcaster, prize-winning historian, uh, biographer of Irish revolutionaries, uh, of the left-wing publisher, Victor Galanz, and certainly when I got to know her, writing on a history of The Economist, most recently, aftermath of the Omar bombings and the family's pursuit of justice. What you may not know is that Ruth is also a crime writer and has produced 12 crime novels. So here's a multi-talented person, and she's here not only because of that intellectual engagement, but because uh, of that dimension, one nation, many roots of Irishness and a reflection of the breadth of the culture here. Uh, and then we have Sundar Katwala, director of British Future. This may be the point at which you wave around the report. I'm not sure. Sundar, you may want to keep it for later. Journalist, general secretary of the Fabian Society Think Tank, uh, for seven or eight years, quite a long time actually, and uh, previously uh, writer uh, on The Observer, research director of the Foreign Policy Centre, and commissioning editor for politics and economics at Macmillan. What we're going to wrestle with here is what this whole idea of one nation means from the perspective of, and I won't put any more flesh on it, many roots. So we'll start with John, and then we'll go to Ruth, and then we'll go to Sundar, and then we'll have a question and answer, and it'll all end by 8 o'clock. John, over to you. Oh, thank you very much indeed, and thank you for the uh, invitation. Um, I will, I hope, end at least by addressing the, the many roots issue, but I want to paint perhaps a broader picture of the, the development of Labour's concept of one nation, which may overlap with or be different from the previous Labour speakers you've had, but let's, let's see. Um, 
this issue of national identity and national stories has interested me for many years, and it's now great to see it at the centre of political debate, so much so that uh, today this is the second time I have spoken about One Nation in a single day. So it was, um, do you want me, is it better if I sit down, or is that... Okay, let me let me let me sit down. Well, so, so I'm a typical natural, no, natural politician. Stand up on all yeah, these occasions. Um, yeah, go ahead. Okay, so it's quite dis- disconcerting, of course, to to open the Sunday newspaper last Sunday, look at the book reviews, and find a book review about Douglas's Her- Douglas Hur's latest book on Benjamin Disraeli, which reveals that firstly he never used the phrase "one nation," uh, <laughs> and secondly, as a defender of privilege, he would have been quite appalled by many of the things that have been done in his name. But nonetheless, Margaret Thatcher never said there's no such thing as society. She's stuck with it, so Disraeli can be stuck with one nation. The idea, though, that has stuck is the idea of two nations, one immensely wealthy, one suffering intolerable conditions in the new industrialised cities who knew nothing of each other's lives. And that stays with us. To what extent is that relevant today? Well, let me read from uh, an email that I received a few weeks ago uh, when I was named in an Economist article that was looking at the weaknesses of the Tories in the North and the weaknesses of Labour in the South. And I received this letter from a, a voter on the Isle of Wight. And she said... The divisions are no longer between social classes. The really significant massive split today is between ordinary people and the privileged few. Most people, whether working or middle class, are happy to think of themselves as ordinary people, trying to do the best for their families and themselves. A huge and intolerable inequality has opened up between the small minority who are immune from the impact of austerity and recession, indeed are living it up as though there were no tomorrow, and the rest of us who are suffering the impact of austerity, cuts, etc. If Labour were to campaign on a platform of a fair deal for ordinary people and ending the gravy train for the pampered, self-serving few and their puppets in the government, it would have a wider appeal nationally, including the South. Personally, I shall continue to vote UKIP. Uh, and then going on to express some views, uh, not surprisingly, uh, uh, about migration and the EU. The point that I want to make is that the, that sense of dislocation is very widely shared and not just amongst UKIP voters. And it has not a single but at least three roots. One is that sense of economic fairness, a sense that people do not have a fair stake a fair share in the way the economy operates and the way that wealth is produced. Not surprising in a country where ordinary people's wages, middle class wages, they would call in the States, have stagnated since, 19, since 2003, 2004. And others have clearly done well. But sec- the second cause of dislocation is the cultural changes, perhaps what you expected me just to talk about today, but the impact of migration leaving people not entirely sure who we are. Uh, how we describe ourselves, what our identity is going to be. So an uncertainty about how we relate to uh, those around us, particularly uh, in clearly the long-resident settled population, including those from minority ethnic groups, again reacting, as others have done before, to new arrivals. And thirdly, there's a sort of sense of political dislocation. It comes up in different ways, um, particularly in England, uh, a sense of underlying resentment about Scottish devolution or Welsh devolution, concerns and fears about the EU and whatever. And it's those three things happening together 
that I think cause this current sense of dislocation and why the one nation concept is so powerful as a response. Individuals will feel those different elements of economic and cultural and political change differently. No two people will react the same, no two people will have the same feelings. For some, one one or more of those issues may not be of any importance at all. For others, they will be particularly important. But they're there out there in society. Labour's shaping of a one-nation response to that has a number of, of, of elements. I'll just pick out five of them. One is the need for a fundamental reshaping of the economy. The sense that the predominantly neoliberal models that have been followed in economic development have failed by a number of tests, not least, actually, the failure to produce an economy which is stable, can have sustained growth, and produce the sort of wealth which enables the UK to pay its way in the world. From a centre-left party, saying you want to change the economy does imply and has and means a more active role for the state working in partnership to create the right conditions for the sort of long-term investment and success that we need in the private sector. The second area, and closely related, is actually an understanding that tackling the extremes of inequality is not a sort of luxurious extra in one's vision of society, but necessary to produce a one-nation feeling. And that includes a range of policies, whether it's the living wage, uh, the criticism of the mechanisms of corporate high pay, the introduction of a mansion tax in order to lower taxes for others, are all part of that drive. Thirdly is a sense of responsibility This is part of building a society with shared values and needing to address the sense at the moment that there's one set of rules for some people and another set of rules for others. It means, for example, though, in welfare, a different approach to to that of the current government, which is punitive to the poor in general and certainly punitive to those who are seen to act irresponsibly. Labour would put the emphasis, undoubtedly, on two things. One is making sure that responsibility is properly rewarded, hence the desire to move back to a more contributory social security system and less exclusive reliance on means testing. And secondly, the desire to take the pressure out of the welfare budget by strategically over time, for example, transferring resources from housing benefits into the construction of homes in which people can live. Fourthly, and this comes from this blue Labour debate, and I'm sure Morris Glassman would have talked about this, the valuing properly again uh, common life, the institutions of local community, and understanding that actually things like pubs or high streets or shops or whatever actually matter to people, and the idea that markets alone determine what is needed is out of kilter with how most people feel about their community. And the fifth area, perhaps, is an understanding that Technocratic policy cannot work without a shared framework of values, a shared national story about what sort of people we are, how we behave one towards another, how responsibilities are exercised. Uh, it's, I've referred to one possible area, the idea of a society in which everyone seems to play by the same rules. Uh, values of that sort are needed to underpin one nation. I've always talked of this as nation building and this is where I want to touch on the many roots idea the idea that what we're trying to build together is more than a a jumble of policies that we hope fit together technocratically 
but the idea that we share a nation, a place in the world, a, a physical space, that we're trying to build a community with shared values, seems to me to be enormously powerful. We have got into a sterile debate between multiculturalism and what some people call integration, some call assimilation. The idea that all you need is, is the ability to respect each other, which is multiculturalism, or all you need is to recognise a majority culture into which minorities have to join. Instead, what we actually need is to build consciously a common history, to have a common story about how we all came to be in the same place at the same time in the way that we did. Small things are important. I mean, recognising that there were two and a half million volunteers in the Imperial Army from India in the Second World War is almost unknown to most, and it probably will be when Michael Gove's curriculum is finished as well, to most school children in this country. So there is no understanding that the, the Sikhs who live in Southampton, for example, have grandfathers who were on the same side as us in the Second World War. And indeed in the First World War. That is an unknown part of our history. And so where have these people come from is not a common and shared story as it could be, but one that we learn to tell together. So actually, nation building seems to me to be something that we need to engage with. And this is where, as a politician, as an activist, I sometimes find myself parting company with some academic research because I'm not really understanding, interested in simply understanding how people feel but how I can shape the society. So I want to be an activist in nation-building, not a passive observer. But I'll just end on this point, and I hope I haven't gone on too, too, too long. The roots of our current sense of dislocation are multiple. It's partly economic, it's partly cultural, it's partly political. And I found in these one-nation debates that protagonists tend to cluster around their own interests. So you have what I would call the economisticals. These are the people who want to reduce everything to the, the economic inequalities and the unfairnesses in the distribution of wealth and the way in which our economy doesn't operate properly. And then you have the culturalists who are interested in essentially the debate about a multi-ethnic society and how you deal with that. And then you have the constitutionalists who are interested in Europe or devolution or the future shape of the English state or whatever it might be. It is crucial to me to understand that these three challenges are interlinked and that a one-nation nation-building has to address the political, the cultural and the constitutional uh, in one package, a shared story about the type of country that we're trying to become. Now, I hope that's not too uh, abstract. It shouldn't be for the LSE. Uh, it's an attempt, though, not to come up with a list of policies. We can do that in discussions. But this is actually, as I say, to end this last point, this is an activist challenge. We, we have, it seems to me at the moment, a choice about the type of country we want to build. And it won't happen by waiting for other people to go out and do it. And if there's a real message behind Ed Miliband's adoption of One Nation, it is not a political slogan. It is an invitation to participate in that exercise and to make it happen. Uh, John Triffick, thanks very much. Uh, Ruth. Well, good evening. Um, uh, Connor has known me for quite a long time, and I think he invited me because he thought I might annoy some people. <laughs> I, I should make it clear that while I write crime novels, the kind of crime novels I write are satires, 
on the British establishment, particularly academia, which I find particularly preposterous. <laughs> I'm going to start with a quick few sentences from a, a very fine man called Ken Minogue, who was a great friend of mine and who died a couple of weeks ago. And he was a professor here from 1984 until 1995, but he actually taught here for 50 years. And Ken was in the middle of academia espousing very fundamental conservative principles um, in a way which I found interesting because he was always going back to first principles. So I just pulled out a few lines of his that I wanted to start with because what I'm going to be talking about is um, the way in which certain people attempted to turn this nation into hundreds of nations through multiculturalism. Ken said in one essay, the very distinction between barbarism and civilization, he was talking about the attack on Western Europe, really. The very distinction between barbarism and civilization has been suppressed by the current relativism, which asserts the equality of all cultures. Nobody, of course, seriously believes this. Quite apart from technology, the moral inequality of cultures is conspicuous in the position of women in different cultures. It is only, was only the West that abolished slavery. But it is a mark of current decorum, perhaps avoidance of the dreaded triumphalism, that we should not proclaim any superiority about Western civilization, even though the West is the one place that millions want to get into. Instead, we must make do with a rationalist doctrine which transposes the usages of European civilization into a rather unsatisfactory set of abstractions about universal rights. This means, he goes on to point out, that all cultures are equally guilty, but actually the West is somehow or other more guilty than others, because, of course, the West is full of self-haters. Now, I want to take us on a little memory lane trip. I'm an Irish immigrant, like Connor. I came here in the late 60s. I had a very old-fashioned view of what being an immigrant was. I thought that if you went to live in somebody else's house, it was your job to try and see how they liked their house to run, be of assistance, maybe when you got to know them well, liven it up a bit, but um, that it was your job to obey their house rules. And, what, and I found this country extraordinarily welcoming, and I never experienced anti-Irish prejudice, even when my countrymen were blowing up London. I was very fed up to watch what Ken Livingstone, and I know a few of you here were barely born when he was functioning well, but um, he was the leader of the Greater London <coughs> Council in the early 80s. And what he set out to do was to divide people, to divide them into separate silos, competing communities. This was all about vote catching, of course. What he was doing with the Irish was <coughs> providing money for... Um, lectures on the terrible things the British had done to us. I mean, I remember a series that I went to where I, I could hardly contain my rage, actually. Um, it included one lecture by a lady bomber who had spent 20 years in, in jail. Uh, it was the one time I lost my temper at a public lecture, actually, when she said that no people in the entire history of the world had ever suffered like the Irish. It was that sort of thing. And Ken was there pouring money into this sort of thing, and at a stage when the IRA were trying to murder and were murdering people in Britain, he was uh, lionising Gerry Adams. 
Um, but the important thing that he was really doing, the terrible thing he was doing, was first of all introducing immigrants not to a notion of duty and requirements and responsibilities, but to a pursuit of competitive victimhood. And a very fine job he did on it too. Now, key moments in my attitude to what was happening with immigrants. The Salman Rushdie affair, 1988. You have a fatwa after the Satanic Verses. And you have all sorts of people among politicians and the literati saying, oh dear, this is very bad. Um, People have been upset by this. Their feelings have been hurt. And instead of being all out on the streets saying, "We, we will not put up with this, Uh, A lot of people were turning in the other direction, like Roy Hattersley was one, I remember, saying, no, no, you shouldn't publish this book, it's too hurtful. And the whole thing was beginning to change. The people who were making the threats were somehow or other the victims. Well, they weren't, actually. They were the people who were making the threats. I lived in Ealing at the time, near Southall. I knew, as anybody knew that took an interest in this in the 80s, that in Southall there was female genital muti- mutilation and there were honour killings. And we knew, because there were some very, very brave women in Southall who were trying to do something about it, they couldn't interest any politicians in it. There were no votes in it. It was an outrage. It was cowardice of the worst kind. The newspapers weren't interested in it. I wasn't doing any journalism then. I didn't have anything that I could do about it except fume. And I was meeting nice, middle-class, left-wing, I have to say, people who would say, oh, you shouldn't get worked up about that, it's just a cultural practice. And you say, no, it's little girls having bits chopped off them. Excuse me, that's not an acceptable cultural practice. And they'd say, don't be so racist. And they did. Um, And the irony of it all was that most of the immigrants I knew wanted to be part of this nation. And they were very distressed that they were actually being pushed out of it. They didn't like this thing of being stuck into ghettos and being expected to resent the fact that somebody in the next ghetto was getting thought to be getting something more than you. I was very keen on the notion of Britishness. I once did a gig with, my God, John Snow and Billy Bragg, I remember where and uh, <coughs> and a few more like them. <laughs> and it was a debate about Britishness. And their contention was, this would have been late 80s, I suppose, very early 90s. Their contention was that Britishness was a totally out-of-date concept. Um, They weren't British, of course not, but they weren't English either. That was a ghastly out-of-date concept. They were Londoners. They were Europeans. Um, There were a few people on that panel who thought they were British. One was me, one was a Canadian, and one was a Jamaican. And we embraced Britishness because it would embrace us. I can't be English. I wasn't born here. I can be British as well as Irish. I treasure that fact. But immigrants were taught in schools and everywhere else that they were victims and they were no part of this. So, cultural cowardice. Let's get to the Danish cartoons. Because my thesis here is how the establishment, how the establishment let down ordinary people, native and immigrant. The Danish cartoons, 2006. Um, if you remember, worldwide riots over completely harmless pictures of Mohammed, which were originally drawn as an illustration by the journal in Denmark, said the editor, 
that they were treating Muslims in Denmark as equals, integrating them into a tradition of satire that included everybody that lived in the country. It was a form of inclusion, not exclusion. And then very bad people proceeded to whip it up into what we know. What happened here? The politicians should have been out there with the editors of the newspapers saying, we will not be intimidated. We are going to publish every newspaper in this country will publish the cartoons. Not at all, not one of them did. They were terrified. But what's more, they wouldn't even say they were terrified. What they always kept saying was that they were being culturally sensitive. I remember the absurd levels this reached. Jackie Smith, I'm not making a sectarian point, politically sectarian point here, John. I mean, that they were all as bad as each other, but you were in, your lot were in power at the time. Jackie Smith was the Home Secretary. If you remember, in 2007, a couple of chaps attempted to blow up Glasgow Airport. She said afterwards, and I understand the good impulse. The good impulse is not to blame the ordinary Muslim. The good impulse is to say we're not blaming community for this. But that doesn't mean that you end up with idiocies like saying, don't call such events instances of Islamic terrorism, but rather call them examples of anti-Islamic activity. Anti-Islamic. This is because uh, Islam, as we all know, because we were told to repeat this, is always a religion of peace. So if anybody who's a Muslim does anything bad, it's because they're really not Muslims. Now, this is absolutely ludicrous. If somebody comes in here shouting, Allah Akbar, who tries to kill us, he thinks he's a Muslim, and I think we should take him at his word. He mightn't be a very good role model Muslim, but he's definitely a Muslim. He's an Islamist, right? Key moment during the last election campaign, which I have... I mean, it distresses me in, a lot in, at the time and in retrospect. A woman in Rochdale called Gillian Duffy, who was the original, you might say, ordinary, decent person. Really decent person. She was a Labour voter. Some of you will remember this. I was actually watching it live, but I've watched it several times since and read the transcript. She's introduced to Gordon Brown by somebody who thinks she'd say the right things and ask, tell him, you know, thank him. And she was very well disposed towards Gordon Brown. But quite early on in the conversation, she bursts in and she says, I mean, it's somebody who's had it's something pent up, you know. She says, you can't say anything about the immigrants because you're saying that you're... And then she pauses and then she says, but all these Eastern Europeans, what are coming in, where are they flocking from? So Brown gets away as soon as possible and in the car afterwards says to his aide, you should never have put me in with that woman. And the aide says, what did she say? Brown says, oh, everything. She was just a sort of bigoted woman. Uh, she said she used to be Labour. I mean, it's just ridiculous. Now... The thing about that story wasn't so much that he called her a bigot. Think about that story that's even worse, is that the problem in Rochdale was not Eastern Europeans. There were about 2,000 Eastern Europeans in Rochdale. What was bugging her was 27,000 Pakistanis and Bangladeshis. Nobody talked about it. And what she was saying, she was terrified of mentioning anybody who wasn't white, so she thought she'd get away with it if she mentioned Eastern Europeans. What gets me is that the average Joe had got to a stage of being terrified of criticising mass immigration, terrified because he would be denounced as racist, because the establishment, and I include the media, most of them, uh, the BBC particularly, um, and all those people, the literati, the academics and so on, were in a kind of conspiracy of anybody who is against this is a bad person. Um, I came across a wonderful line about um, 
the uh, Metropolitan Naval Gazing by Hugo Rifkind, which I just have to include. Uh, this is what happens to a political movement when it gets colonised by sanctimonious, humorless, self-loathing, middle-class hypocrites, perhaps of just the sort I'd be myself if I was devoid of any irony, wit or self-knowledge. So BBC Academia, the Chav haters, um, the people who were always terribly convinced that um, you know if you didn't treat the Chavs very carefully, they'd, they'd all vote for the BNP. I mean, one of the things that was extraordinary about this amazingly tolerant com- country is how very few people ever vote for the BNP because they think they're rather, really rather indecent and unpleasant, and they don't hate immigrants. They're just overwhelmed in a lot of places, and they wish they could talk about it. I thank God for, among the people I'm inclined towards, Grayson Perry, you know, the potter, who recently was asked why he made fun of all sorts of things in his um, works of art and attacked all sorts of things. And he was asked by somebody quite brave why he hadn't attacked Islamism. And he said, the reason I have not gone all out attacking Islamism in my art is because I feel the real, real fear that someone will slit my throat. Plain speaking, I like it. Let's have some now. People on the right have been rather hard on the left. Um, the Federation of Student Islamic Societies recently, as a great guest speaker, Baroness Warsi, who is our Minister for Faith, who is doing a Jackie Smith and all this stuff. The priority, she said, this was just after. Um, it was just after Woolwich, I think. The, priori- the major priority for the government was to tackle Islamophobia. Well, actually, it isn't. Islamophobia is a really bad thing, as any kind of nasty phobia is a bad thing. There's very little of it, people who are shouting about it. I mean, I've been very flattered to be um, <coughs> listed by Islamophobia Watch, um, because any time you say boo, any time you say anything critical about murderers, even, uh, you are clearly an Islamophobe and to be denounced. Uh, the universities have been seduced. I just thought, just to be topical now that I'm in the LSE, um, it's terribly interesting to read about all the universities have been seduced by large mo- amounts of money from Arabic and Islamic sources. Chinese, too, of course, these days. They're doing good colonisation. I mean, I'm far too polite to mention the Sheikh Zahid Theatre over there, out there. Thank you for not mentioning <laughs> your truth. I think your time is winding up. <laughs> So I definitely will mention the 1.5 million from Gaddafi's favourite son. <laughs> Dr. Gaddafi. <laughs> uh, it's been interesting to see some of the intellectuals actually beginning to face it. Now, Nick Cohen, I don't know how many of you have read him, but he's been a really doughty fighter for plain speaking and free speech on the left. David Goodhart, in absolute agony... Uh, over the last several years has been worrying about immigration and has finally produced a book about what has gone wrong, about how badly the British have handled it. And then he's done a bit of hand-wringing about what could be done next. Um, And I truly hope that Sundar is going to have some better ideas than um, David Goodhart has on this. Uh, he uh, He used to go every year to the Hay Festival, but he was not invited to discuss his book this year because... It was um, because the festival was about celebrating multiculturalism on a global scale and they didn't want anybody spoiling the party by saying maybe it hadn't worked out that well. Okay. Right. Um, My basic position. Man in the street, 
is an awful lot more <coughs> sensible than the clever, silly people who dominate our society. I think that is always true in the gut instincts of the British people and a large number of the immigrants who have come here and become part of the kind of country it is. It is a wonderful country. I'm very grateful to it for taking me in. And uh, we have a duty because of the terrible mess that has been made in the last three or four decades of immigration. We have a duty, immigrants and not immigrants, to try to work on pulling this nation together into one nation. The immigrants have an enormous amount to contribute, but it is the house that belongs to the British people, and I think all of us immigrants should continue to behave politely in it. Thank you. Sandra. Well, thank, thanks very much, and uh, thank you for inviting me to be in this uh, in, in this series. Uh, and one nation, many roots is a question that we could come up from many different perspectives. But I suppose you've got to start somewhere from many roots, as we all have. So let me let you tell let me tell you a little bit about 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 my my roots, my background, where I'm where I'm coming from as I approach this question. Um, I was born British. Uh, uh, in a hospital in uh, in Yorkshire, uh, almost forty years ago now, showing my age as well, and um, it was um, about thirty years before that. Actually, my my parents had been born four thousand miles apart from each other. Um, my dad uh, in Baroda in India, not far from the uh, birthplace actually of uh, Mahatma Gandhi. Um, he's Gujarati. But he was born British, actually. He was born a British subject, because it was 1944, so he didn't become, he didn't become an Indian citizen until his, uh, until, his, uh, until his third birthday, and he's become British again since then. Uh, so he's come full circle. Um, whereas my mum was born in County Cork in Ireland, so I'm sorry if the Irish uh, seem to be dominating the debate tonight, uh, having a sort of excessive share of voice in the debate. Now, County Cork was not British, <laughs> certainly not British by the, 19, uh, the late 1940s uh, when my mother was born, but she didn't need a passport at all, and she didn't have a passport when she got the ferry from Cork to Holyhead and got, uh, got a coach down to Portsmouth to begin her training as a nurse. She only got a passport um, some years later to go on holiday to, uh, to Italy, and she's never, um, she's never become British or English, in fact, but she's voted in 14 or 15 general elections because you don't treat Irish citizens as, as, as foreigners, actually, uh, in Britain. So I was interested in history, I suppose, up to a point. And I was interested in identity. Uh, and, you know, that's a story... And I was a bit sceptical about some of the stories about what gets left out of the histories that people tell you, if you want, as an Irish history or an Indian history or a British history of all of that. Because I was a product of... Uh, empire and decolonisation and of the National Health Service because my dad came to work here he was trained as a doctor Britain was looking for more doctors he'd done a summer on the, uh, as a doctor on the Indian Railways and he came to London to work at the NHS my mum was nursing him the NHS I think is a story of Britain it's a story of what people decided to do. It's just had its 65th birthday uh, last Friday. And it, it, you know, in this polling, we give you a sort of Britain on the couch kind of publication about what people felt. The thing that makes people proudest to be British is the National Health Service. We all benefit from it. It gives us a sense of security. You take your children there. If they're ill, you can get them che uh, checked out. Um, <coughs> and we don't always like immigration 
in this country, and we can be quite anxious about it, and that's been a story over the time. But we actually know the NHS wouldn't have survived without that. And so my parents' two journeys are part of, you know, hundreds of thousands of journeys, actually, of people who came here contribute to something we all, we all benefit from. My dad actually arrived um, uh, two weeks after Enoch Powell made a sort of infamous speech on rivers of blood, which obviously hadn't been particularly well reported in Baroda. Um, <laughs> but, um, but he came anyway. But um, Enoch Powell actually had an ally. And it, one of the funny things that Enoch Powell said, uh, actually, and people don't know this, because Enoch Powell had changed his mind by the late 1960s, where his, his point was, you know, stopping immigration was one thing, but the really important thing was to get as many people as possible to leave, because people like me who were born here uh, to parents that would never be British and could never feel British. Uh, or as I feel I can be British but actually he'd been in India for three years in the war uh, and all he wanted all he ever wanted was to be Viceroy of India and that was, you know, that's why he went into politics but India was becoming independent he was writing a 20,000 word essay to the Conservatives to Rab Butler we can still hold India, it will take some military divisions we don't need to let it go they let it go, he was distraught it changed his view as well but one thing people don't know that he wrote to his parents uh, after three years there, he wrote to them and he said, I've taken to India like a duck to water. I feel as Indian as I do British. Now, it's not something I've ever felt. Like my, my relatives don't think I'm as Indian as I'm British, and I don't feel that. It's funny that Enoch felt that then, but actually once you'd lost the empire and you'd come home and you'd shrunk as a, an island, you know, then there was something else that was, that was going on. But I don't think there's a more British story than mine, but it's only one of 60 million stories of being British. And actually, uh, one in three of us have a story that's a little bit like mine, in that one in three of us have a parent or a grandparent who wasn't born in this country. Uh, but the interesting thing, I think, is that 50% of the population of England have no grandparent that has ever, uh, that ever crossed outside of the boundaries of England, even to Scotland, Wales or Ireland. And so there are two different, actually, ways of being English and being British. There's the version of being quite rooted here, sort of born under the oak tree and, you know, uh, you know, generations of people sometimes in a same place. And then this, the interesting question about this country, which is, you know, part of its insular identity is that it's insular and inward-looking and it's insular and it's global because islands are global. So the other way of being British is to be part of this story, actually, of British history of empire and colonisation uh, and decolonisation and commonwealth and diversity and integration. And so I think we've had a history of immigration and integration, of anxiety about this, and we've had to work out how to deal with that. And in some ways, I think we've dealt with it really quite well compared to other countries in Europe and compared to sort of what Britain was like when I was 10 years old and I was, um, had a Scouse accent when I was 10 years old and I was a supporter of Everton <coughs> football club and I was badgering my dad to take me uh, and he did and uh, you know football terraces in the 1980s the late 1980s were, were a kind of a stark place and you would hear things that you would never hear today and if I took my children to watch football I wouldn't hear that so Britain has become enormously less racist but we haven't become less anxious about issues about our diversity no one can doubt now that we're a diverse society if you get the census uh, Seven and a half million people born abroad. Um, London, 37% foreign born, 45% white British. Although people misunderstand that about London, London's still 60% white, and it's 63% British born. And I object a bit to people taking white British to be a synonym for British because you know my household uh, is 15%. Uh, 
white British. Uh, my wife, who's half Irish as well, half English, half Irish. But it's like it's got six British-born British citizens in it, and I don't accept that we're less British than other people. But we want a debate, I think, about what we share and what we don't share, uh, and how we how we have a shared society. Um, and British future is about the conversations our society should have about identity, integration, immigration, opportunity. They're issues that could actually rip our society apart, could be quite hot-button issues, but they're conversations we need to have. And Ruth was telling us about ways we've refused to have the conversation or close the conversation down or call people uh, racist wanting to have the conversation. And I think there's a lot in that. That did happen and it shouldn't have happened. Although I think it's only one part of the story, because another part of the story is that these 40 years of science and not being allowed to talk about these issues have been pretty noisy been a lot of shouting about not being allowed to talk about these issues, as well as perhaps a lack of a conversation about the issues and what we do about them. And in a way, there are two different emotional attachments to this story of diversity. One is to celebrate it and say, you know, I like the fact that it's brought us curry houses and Chinese restaurants. I like the fact that our football is global. I like the fact that we're a diverse country. And the other is to worry about it and say, I'm really worried about the society I lived in has changed. I don't recognise it as much as I did. I don't feel as home as I did. But I think the key point which we've ended on is that whether you're inclined to celebrate it or you're inclined to be anxious about it, no one's going to put it back. It's not going to change now. Um, so we have to make it work and we have a shared responsibility to make it work. And that's what I want to Now, multiculturalism, which is a debate we've been having for some years, I share John's view of it, but it's quite... Uh, it's quite an unhelpful, quite a stale debate now, partly because it means different things to different people. And, you know, we gave us a critique of it, and I think the scorecard's quite mixed. I have always felt that the sort of community of communities approach doesn't work, because actually I don't know, for example, if, like me, you're from a mixed-race background, as more and more people are, actually you don't fit into one of those boxes, you don't want to be in those boxes, you actually want a shared commitment. But actually, integration was a two-way street. Yes, immigrants have always wanted to respect the community they've come from. Go back to the Empire Windrush that arrived again almost exactly 65 years ago, and that was a very good celebration I went to of it at Bloomsbury Baptist Church, and the stories of what happened. You had people who had no doubt at all they were British. I mean, the reason the Windrush went to Jamaica was to pick up people who were on leave from the RAF and to bring them back. And then other people bought a ticket for £28 and decided to, to cross the world. And they knew they were British, and they had been taught Michael Gove-type history in their schools, and they knew, you know, every river in England. And they arrived and they found people who hadn't heard of Jamaica and who hadn't heard of uh, their role and why they would be British. And so there was actually a clash and a conflict which took a couple of generations. And so integration is about wanting to commit to where you are and being part of it. And it's about accepting that people who do want to do that are fully and equally us. And we've got over that issue, I think, in many ways about can you be black and British, which we were worried about, actually, uh, in the 80s and the 90s. And we can't remember why we worried about it. But actually, um, young Muslims are still thinking, will Britain ever accept me? as me, and other people are saying, do the Muslims want to be British anyway? Because I'm okay with the Hindus and Sikhs now, that's worked out okay, but I don't really know Sharia law I hear about, or I don't really know if the same deal is on offer now. And the question is, what should we do? Because we've got three million British Muslims who are British, and who are part of this now. And, you know, there are probably two or three thousand very dangerous people, and five or ten percent of people who might have a bit of sympathy for them. What are we going to do to work with the people who want to make it work? What support are we offering them, and how much do we look at the, at the hothead? So I think we need to have those conversations, and we need to have these debates. Um, we need to have them openly. We need to put the anxiety on the table, and I'm fed up with telling people that if they're worried about it, the problem is they're wrong, or they misunderstood a graph or something. We need to have that debate, but also we need to say, what are you going to do about it? What shall we do about it? What is the possible workable solution. One nation is a powerful, powerful idea that appeals to most people in this society 
because it's not true. And so the challenge is, I think, to make it much more true than it is. Thanks very much. Thank you very much. Terrific. I mean, those are three tremendously interesting perspectives on One Nation, which stuck to our topic but raged widely. So now it's your opportunity to engage with our speakers. We have a bit of time. We designed these to give you a bit of space. What I'd ask you to do uh, is, first of all, obviously try and catch my eye. And then if I draw you in, if you could give me your name, if you feel comfortable doing so, and also where you're from. And I think we can take observations as well as questions. One thing that's a little unfair is to take too long. So I may be asking you to bring your remarks to a close if I feel that, in a sense, they're going on a bit. But uh, let's get a dialogue going. I'll take a few questions, and then I'll go to the panel, and then back. So we get a conversation going. I have a lady up here whose hand is either resting. She's looking around. Yeah, I did mean you. It's obviously handy if your hand is very forthright, madam. And we have a gentleman on my right here, and I'm looking for somebody vaguely over here, and I've got this gentleman whom I may ignore. No, I'm now going to take him. So we'll take these three. Uh, Madam, could you set a good tone by not looking around again, but telling us who you are and a question, and then we go over here and then down here. Um, My name is Maya Karkowska, and I run a group called European Club, and about 30 people in this audience are basically from that club. Thanks for the forewarning. <laughs> because uh, I agree with the idea that if you're not happy with something, you should say out loud and discuss it. So I started the club because I, fe- I started feeling after 18 years of living in the UK and having my full career here, being an Eastern European, under pressure. Because somehow being European, being a Londoner, being cosmopolitan and pro-multiculturalist became shameful. And um, I chose Britain as a country where, where I migrate. Um, I became British as well because it, it was different from other European countries, because it offered more opportunities, because it was more inclusive. After the recession, which is quite normal in societies where you have restriction of resources, people become nationalistic. <coughs> and what I'm seeing now is exactly that, the rise of English nationalism, um, politicians like uh, Farage becoming popular and mainstream and affecting both labor and conservative policies, which is really sad to see. And the last thing I'll say is I don't live in anybody's house. I live in my own flat, for which I've been paid for through my nose for the last 18 minutes. Thanks. Can I ask you a couple of questions? Do you experience it personally, or are you reflecting what you see in the newspapers and on the TV? Do you see that hardening yourself? I'm very appreciative in my job. Thanks God for that, otherwise I wouldn't be sitting there. Um, yeah. I think sometimes you experience it personally, but less than that, it's more what comes to the media. The media. Uh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, so. And, and also I can see the shift among... Uh, especially British white people, they, they feel more comfortable to uh, be Yeah, yeah, thank you. And I would ask you, but perhaps we'll come back later, about what your group is doing. Maybe very, very briefly, when you say there's 30 of you, have you decided to try and affect opinion uh, with your organisation? Really. We're, we're just interested what others are thinking. Uh, the group actually has 3,000 members and it's about three years old. Yeah. And it's um, focused on going to political debates, but also doing outdoor activities. So it's not a political party or a movement or anything. It's just people like me 
who are interested in what's happening around them. Excellent. Well, if you're not among the elite 30, you could do. So catch the lady's eye towards the end of the event. Thank you very much, sir. Uh, my name's John Fee, and I'm a postgraduate student here. Um, just one thing I want to, to ask. Uh, John Denham spoke um, at the start about people who are um, the economistic people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think the One Nation phrase um, has that sort of root. Um, and when you talk about one nation in that, in that sense these days, people often talk about tax, you know, the 50p tax rate, should it be 50p, should it be higher, should it be cut? People often talk about um, tax avoidance, um, various tax havens around, around the world. Um, there's a lot of idea that that generates uh, unfairness. And that's what I, um, I think you were saying that a lot of this um, non-one nationness comes from. The one thing that strikes me is that um, you can talk about fiscal policy and tax movements, but if you look at um, quantitative easing that the Bank of England has been undertaking um, in very massive um, doses over the last few years, um, Bank of England figures actually show that what quantitative easing has done is it has reduced the wealth on average of the lowest 10% by £779, and this has increased the wealth of the top 10% by £323,000. But no one talks about that. Whenever you talk about economic inequality, it's always a question of tax. The monetary question is always, always forgotten. And I just wonder why that, Excellent. Why that might be. Is that your particular research area? Is that your particular research? One of, them. one of them. One of them. Thank you very much. That's to John, and we'll obviously have an opportunity in a moment to hear from the panel. Yeah. Uh, my name is Roland Jack. I work in sports marketing. Actually, a sports-related question or comment. I played for cricket club in Greenwich, and a few weeks ago I went on some training. There was somebody there just arrived from Bangladesh, literally a couple of weeks before, and uh, so it turned out was introduced hardly spoke English. And the coach showed him the ball and said, let's see what you can do. And I saw that's a remarkable thing, that in this sporting context, somebody turns up, has really virtually nothing to contribute, apart from the fact that they play cricket and they fit in, and within, you know, within a few minutes he was playing and everything was fine. So just interested in your comments on um, the, the role of sport really in, in, yeah. in building. Excellent. Thanks, Roland. Uh, John, you've been mentioned first, and also you spoke first, so you might want to both comment and also reflect on what we've heard. Uh, but not can, necessarily. It'll be eight o'clock, and we can all. No, <laughs> no. I will keep you quiet yeah, after okay. a few minutes. Okay. I mean, let, let, let's start with with with, with Maya's thing. Um, you know, it is one of the great things about this country that so many people have built successful lives here. My own feeling is that our understanding of that and our defence of that has to be balanced with. Funny enough, the sort of distributional questions that the second uh, question that John raised, because I, I think it, it's very clear, I think, that particularly the mass immigration that happened between about 2000 and 2010, which probably points out it happened to be under a Labour government, but it did happen, uh, almost certainly did not benefit the incomes of those who are in the bottom 20, 30, even 40 percent of the population. In, in my own city of Southampton, where City of about 200,000 people in 2000. Uh, about 30,000 people arrived in the next six years. It's very difficult to accommodate 30,000 people arriving in one place uh, if you're that size of city. And there were effects not just on public services, uh, significant runs on access to public services, delivery of public services, wages, construction wages fell by 50%. didn't show up in any national statistics because construction is a self-employed industry and the statistics did not exist on self-employment. So if you were a builder, if if I wanted an extension built, it was great. 
because it was much cheaper. If I was a builder with a mortgage to pay whose business was building extensions, it was pretty bad news unless I could employ people quickly. So the reality is you cannot actually deal with migration questions and these types of changes without looking at the distributional effects. So if somebody turns up and says you get 1% economic, economic growth, so-and-so, unless you ask the question about who's going to get the economic growth, you're not actually dealing with the economic side of migration. So that, that's one point I'd make. I mean, John's point... I mean, more, so, so more generally, I think that's, uh, that's important. And I think there's been an underestimated uh, debate around migration about the distributional effects and also about the sheer pace of change that can be accepted. Because the figures I gave you for Southampton, that means that more people turned up in six years than the whole of the post-war migration of Southampton. So a pretty positive story about immigration then becomes quite challenging because of the pace of change. On John's point, I mean, I, I think you, you make a very good point, and I hadn't—I'd heard vaguely those figures, but I hadn't heard those before. And I don't think there's any reason I know that nobody would talk about them. So there's just, you, know, you always come to these things, you always hope to learn something. So I've learned something for you tonight to be important. Again, when we are looking at policy, and if you're worried about economic inequality, understanding. Uh, uh, who is benefiting is particularly important. I mean, I, I'll, I'll, I'll leave others to talk about uh, sport, if, though I share your cricketing experience, being a cricket lover uh, myself, but Sunder's always got a good line on Andy Murray and his role in, um, uh, in, in, in national identity. If I could just reflect, though, on the earlier discussion, I mean, Sunder and I, from slightly different starting points, come to very similar conclusions, I think. Um, my name, Denham probably means that I'm the only Anglo-Saxon on the panel here. Uh, it's almost certainly a Saxon name. So I always used to say that you know, Ed Miliband's dad and my forebears come from the same part of Germany. There's just about 1,300 years between them. <laughs> and probably my forebears came as invaders and his father came as a refugee, but you know, didn't stop me being his PPS and uh, being a big supporter of his as leader of, 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 of the Labour Party. But I, I just see this to Ruth. There are elements of your criticism of the failure to be robust about challenges of multiculturalism that I would share, but I think there are areas where we can overstate the case if we're not careful. I mean, I don't think that when those signs used to go up saying no dogs, no blacks, no Irish, people were just talking about robust British expressions of views. And the reality is we didn't get to where we are uh, in terms of pretty good race relations in this country by a passive process of Britain being a very tolerant nation. I mean, it took huge amounts of struggle and campaigning and challenge to actually get where we were today and to overcome that very overt racism that existed. So for all the, the points you can claim to, where there's a metropolitan elite, if you like, uh, defended things that were indefensible, uh, actually we wouldn't have got here without active political struggle. And the second point I, I, I make is this, and it's about Islam. I mean, a, a young man, a young constituent of mine came to see me about three weeks ago with a petition that he collected uh, in local mosques following the Woolwich bombing. About, precisely about this point, Islamic terrorism. And his point was, his local pub, private school educated, very good, going to get four A-levels and go to Oxbridge, I'm quite sure. Um, his experiences of being described of Islamic terrorism being talked about is that in a society with so little understanding of Islam, it is assumed that he follows a religion that preaches terrorism. That is how his experience of it is. And now that is the difficulty about and why 
these things are very difficult. And we, we, are, we are not consistent. Anders Breivik, the Norwegian neo-Nazi, is never described as a Christian terrorist. He was a Christian terrorist, and he did, on exactly your point, Ruth, he described himself as a Christian. He did it for Christian regions, but he is never described as a Christian terrorist. And we have the sensitivity to understand that that is an appalling use of a language and a perversion of our general understanding of Christianity. And this is a society where most people understand Christianity, because even if you're like me, you're not of the faith, you're probably brought up in it. So these issues of language are, are important. And I think a, a generalised defence of insensitivity to how people feel is not res- really adequate for the challenges that we face. Great. Uh, Ruth Ballspot, John Ted, and of course, not forgetting the contributions from the floor. Of course. Well, I, mean, I have to agree with an awful lot of what John said. And I would also like to say that he, well, we already know that he was um, a very honourable politician. The fact that, you know, politicians mostly don't resign unless they have to. And to resign on a point of principle is a very rare thing to do. <laughs> and even though I was on the other side about that particular war, I really admired him at the time for what he did, and I still do. Um, a few things. The English nationalism, you see, I keep coming back to the fact that I think it's up to the immigrant more than the inhabitant of the country to make the effort. Let's take up no blacks, no dogs, no Irish. I've once um, deeply endeared myself to my countrymen, because I write quite a lot there, by saying that actually when you sat down and thought about it, and you thought about the average landlady in the 50s and 60s who had never met a black, was really terrified, just didn't know any you know, and I didn't want to dog, leave the dogs out, which I'm not accusing them of, they didn't want dogs, all right, fair enough. Um, but the, the no Irish, well, I'll tell you the absolute truth, because there are big cultural differences between the English and the Irish. They would have liked a nice, dull lodger who was going to come home at six o'clock for their tea every evening. They did not want somebody who was staying out with friends and arriving with bringing lots of them back for a party at two in the morning. That's why they didn't want Irish, because they knew them all too well. I speak as an Irish person who likes a party. I wouldn't have myself as a lodger, frankly. (laughs) Um, It's about familiarity, and this is the whole essence, and this is where cricket's very important, as you pointed out. And one of the tragedies in the educational system was when cricket became became ruled as posh in the schools. A lot of the schools decided, for strange lefty reasons, that it was somehow an inappropriate game, because it was one of the best uniter of young boys and men that there was and it's very simple and straightforward and it was always so extraordinarily important in the empire and it's extraordinarily extraordinarily important in a decolonised empire and that's been a tragedy Um, English nationalism well you know you, you see nobody asked the average voter if they wanted mass immigration now I will say in defense of labor that they didn't know what they were doing you know they were given a figure of 13,000 polls but they wanted to believe in 13,000 polls and then frankly the entire establishment was thrilled to bits with all the cheap cleaners and good workers that they had I mean at the, the point you were making about who benefited it was just damn clear who didn't benefit and I mean I lived when I lived in South Ealing and I was very happy there for a long time it was somewhere that had coped with immigration terribly well. It had a lot of polls after the war, but they learned English very quickly and they were, they, they were integrated. Then, gradually, Asians began to arrive and initially a bit of suspicion, but then the corner shop people became the, the treasures of the locality. And I remember when my Hindu news agent, who was a great friend of mine, told me how reluctant he'd been to get to know the Muslim who ran the Anglo-Bangla takeaway. 
because his father had brought him up to not, not even not having to touch a, a Muslim, and how he'd begun to recognise in Britain his own prejudices, and how he'd begun to lose his own prejudices, and how they had become friends, and he had even gone to the, the wedding of the son of the house. You know, and people were slowly getting to know each other, and it was going very well. And then a whole generation of Poles arrived and transformed the whole, whole neighbourhood in three years. In that the, the shops, the delicatessen shops that sprang up didn't even have one notice in English because they were so separate. The kids now, because they were a new generation, they didn't have to integrate. They had to learn just enough English for their jobs. They watched, they Skyped home. They went home cheaply on Ryanair. They talked to each other on mobile phones cheaply. They, they didn't have to communicate. They had their own, they had Polish newspapers in the shops. And the resentment among the people of South Ealing at that time, I mean, I left around that time after it happened for different reasons. But it wrecked the neighbourhood in the sense that it turned it into something foreign. And the resentment of that among the, the, the Indians and the Pakistanis and the Bangladeshi and the, the, some of the Albanians that were beginning to connect, it was terrible. And all the time there was this feeling of nobody asked us. You know, and we were lied to because people don't believe statistics anymore. And they weren't apologised to because it wasn't admitted what was happening to to the job market for the lower paid. And if there could be more honesty, and I know John Denham, because I read enough about politics, I'm a terrible anorak, I know it as he put um, Ed Miliband up to making a sort of an apology, and it wasn't what you call it, it wasn't a very overwhelming apology, but he did say we sort of got it wrong. Actually, we could do with lots of apologies from a lot of people about how wrong they got it, and then an appeal to the British people to sort it in the ways we're talking about, because everybody does want one nation. And on the whole, there is a tremendous acceptance of the other. And so, Sunder, and uh, I don't want to encourage you, but there might be a reference to Mr. Andrew Murray. Um, yeah, or, or something. Um, I mean, I preferred, um, I preferred Ruth's sort of story about how contact kind of gets you there in the end to the sort of defence of the, the sign. I mean, you're sort of allowed to do that if, if you are Irish, I suppose. But, um, I mean, you know, I think, I think, I think we're seeing it from one side. Contact gets you there, and we do get there. And actually, we're very anxious about immigration. But one of the ways we're anxious about the next wave is to explain that we're no longer anxious about the last wave. So the idea that cultural differences with the Irish now feels a very kind of sort of arcane thing, and yet Catholicism was, you know, very much, you know, foreign loyalties to foreign powers, etc. You know, you know exactly the same sorts of things actually for quite some time that you have with Muslims, kind of today. But what you now say is, oh, we're never worried about the Poles. But the Bulgarians, the Romanians, we can't do that. And one of the ways that you integrate, uh, in a way, is to is to start to sort of express the anxieties as a as a now sort of integrated group. But there is a story of integration um, in that. And I think what you've got to do is is find the shared interest because it's fine to say let's have lots of apologies, but say we'd have made a different decision in two thousand and four. It's not two thousand and four. And so the decision now is: do you want to get out of the European Union or not? And if you do want to get out which is a sort of Nigel Farage position, that's a, that's a fine position. And if you want to stay in, then you've either got to negotiate the rules so that they're quite different from what they are today, or you've got to find the way that you're going to make the rules fair so people play by the rules. But there are coalitions of shared interests on, you know, enforcing minimum wages, 
paying living wages, you know, looking at skills and apprenticeships that unite new migrants, existing migrants, settled minority communities, the white working class, the white middle class, the non-white working class, etc. We've got to do more on that. Now, that won't do it all because, you know, John says we need to unite economists, culturalists, constitutionalists. I'm probably in the culturalist kind of box. It's too easy to say, you know, you deal with the real issues. It's not there. You also deal with the sense... Is this country, my country, does it have something we share? We say the terms on which we can do it is we should all be proud to be British and have things in common, and that's got to involve everyone who's part of it now. Deal or no deal. And actually 10% of people say no deal. You know, I want you not to be right, I want it to go wrong, I want you all to fail because we were lied to. And other people say I'll, I'll buy into that. And it's more important in a way to do it is national identity that is diverse and broad. And the British have done quite well on this, I think, compared to the rest of Europe, but need to do more work. There's good news and bad news about this. The good news is that racism has dropped enormously in one and two generations. So if you ask people, would you be okay if your kids married someone from a different ethnicity? It was 50% who said I'd be uncomfortable in the 1980s and the 1990s, and it's one in ten now. And generationally, it's just kind of absolutely gone. But the other level, let's not pat ourselves on the back and say it's not there, and this is work we did on what people think about integration. Is there prejudice against these groups? Is there prejudice against Muslims? 54% of people say there's a lot, and 75% of people say there's quite a bit. Is there prejudice against East Europeans? Actually, 60 70%. It's good that people recognise it. Um, now, sorry, I was meant to say something about sport, wasn't I? I was describing the Guardian today. <laughs> it's not compulsory. Um, I was describing the Guardian today as a sports obsessive with an interest in national identity, which I thought was It's really important because it is universal in the way that you do, and people can do it. I spent a lot of time in Bradford. Uh, around the team getting to Wembley and the use of that to reach out around the communities. And you have the sense that Bradford, um, you know, has, you know, amber and claret colours and they were open to anyone who wanted to be from Bradford. And it's a town that has, you know, a lot of division and not much sense of identity came together around that. It's a mini Olympic style thing. And that's why the Olympics worked, actually, because people are looking for things to come together around and want them, want to be part of them and want to share them with people. Uh, Sandra, I think you're being too modest. This is, in fact, the document to which you're referring. Is it? Um, that's 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 that, that's one of them. The, yeah. the, um, there's a there's a there's a there's a publication on our website called the Integration Consensus, yeah. which has the race and ethnicity uh, yeah. figures that people might be interested in. Because uh, a lot of detail. There. Thanks, all three. I think we're going to run a few quickfire questions now, and we'll try and get a couple of rounds in. We've got a lady with her hand up, having caught my eye, and we have another lady who's caught her eye. So we'll <laughs> take these two. I'm preferencing this group, and I've got that gentleman. So let's take these. Uh, lady, just back, name, and I think it's now a question or a quick observation. Okay, so, um, my name's Christy Thomas, and my claim to British passport is um, an Irish grandmother born in Australia. <laughs> 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 I'm a mixture of European. Um, my main thing is, even tonight, things concern me, is the discussion has always been about immigration. Whereas, in fact, it's a different experience. As uh, Mr. Denham was pointing out in Southampton, what people have actually experienced is, as I would say, is colonisation. And how I would like to know how the panel would define the difference between mass immigration and colonisation, or even disimmigration and colonisation. Because I think people, there's so much discussion that about a completely different experience, which Mr. Denham actually highlighted. Yeah. Uh, thank you. Uh, my name is Olga Krell. I'm also 
I'm born in Serbia, citizen of New Zealand, living in London, right. lived in a few other countries. But amazingly not Irish. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'd still let you ask a question. Um, I have two points to make. The first is that I think immigration is, um, over the time, has changed as well. Traditionally, or maybe after the war, immigration was different than what it is now. But when you had a shipload of immigrants going to America, um, they knew that they were expected to become American, and because they knew that you know they're not going to go back in two or three years back home, most of them probably never went home till 20 years later. So it was accepted, and most of them done it in, in more or less a degree. Um, over the period of time, it has changed because we opened the border, borders for uh, goods to circulate without any problem. Circulating people is just a consequence of that, and it's not going to stop. And I think what we'll have to stop is actually insisting on English, German, New Zealand, because I'm afraid there's no such thing anymore. Mm. It's just mixture and we, you know, who is English? Now? Ah, I think you've made it. I mean, people will want to respond to that, actually. Thank you. Last one before we have a quick-fire response to the panel. Sir? I'm, I must remark on And you'll remember to tell us who you are before you make the remark. Okay, I'm Riyad Akbar, a member of the public. And I must say something about what we've done here, which is comments are absolutely livid by the level of complacency in some of the remarks that she's made. And I think particularly around this idea of coming into a home. I'm from a, a, a British background, my family is from the Commonwealth, and we have a very strong sense of hospitality, and my experience growing up in Britain as a young person was definitely not one of being welcomed into the home, and that's one of the reasons why people um, were, um, were, were very grateful for some of the support of people on the left, particularly Ken Livingston at a time when lots of people were being victimised, not having a sense of victimhood by the host population for many years. Um, moving on from that, though, I would say the idea of one nation, a particularly sort of fragmented period where many groups have been blamed for the ills of society, whether it's Muslims or the rich or the very, very poor who are subsisting on welfare benefits, the notion that we can devise a sense of unity that is based on the ordinary Joe, I'm slightly concerned about the outsiders in this, um, and very worried about political project based on the middle. Because uh, it's a vote capture up, I understand what the political parties are going for it, but it's those people who are being left out and who are... Um, being scapegoated, both right at the top, but also more worryingly at the bottom. Okay. Okay. Thank you very much, uh, member of the public. I'm going to I'm going to go straight to Ruth, and then John, and then Sandra. If that order will. I'm going to ask the panel to be pretty quick now, actually, because we're dealing directly with points from the floor. Ruth, um, okay. you want to get this? Sorry. Okay. Oh yes, we're sure. That's why it sure. keeps moving. Yes. <laughs> Look, for people who weren't, if we're talking about a home, if you are. If you actually arrive at somebody's house and they take you in, which is what happened to most of us immigrants, and we weren't actually invited, most of us, although the people in the Windrush were, and some others were, but generally we were not invited initially. Well. No, but you're fine, your parents. Well, 
Wait, wait. That's uh, fine. Let's, let's hear it out. Let's hear it I'm, out. I'm just saying that, <laughs> that for the majority of immigrants, they were the people who needed to make more of an effort than the people who hadn't actually asked them in in the first place. That, I just think it's our job to. I say that as well. Immigration and colonisation, well, I think that's exactly what I was describing in, uh, in South Ealing. It was, it's colonisation. And that's bad. And it's ter- what happened in South Wales was bad. And it's terrible that Tower Hamlets is now a small Bangladesh. And it's terrible for the people in Tower Hamlets. And we've allowed colonisation, the ghettos, in some cases, to become complete little colonies. It's wrong. It's bad. Uh, thanks. I've got to go to John now. No, th- there's a huge difference between an awful lot of migration and the problems that I acknowledged, and colonisation. Colonisation, if it means anything, is one set of people arriving somewhere to take it over and to rule it over other people. I can absolutely say in Southampton I have never come across any experience whatsoever of any of the minority communities seeking to be the people who dominate the community in Southampton. People want nothing more than to be part of the overall. Now, working out how you do that, and of course if you, large numbers of people come very quickly... You know, there are challenges in doing that, but it's absolutely not colonisation. I'll be absolutely explicit about that, and I'll be quite reversed. The USA is very interesting. They have a national story, which is that we are a migrant country. Now, we are a migrant country, and not just in the last 50 years, but we have always been a migrant country. In Southampton, the Huguenots came over weaving our wool... You know, when they were fleeing oppression hundreds of years ago and, and laid the basis of the weaving industry in Southampton. We ever French Street in Southampton is named after the Huguenots and where they built a church to worship. We are a polyglot nation that likes to think of it as an ethnically pure nation. If part of our national story were that we were actually over time a migrant nation, we would be in a stronger place. But the last point about forgetting about these things, actually we live in physical places. And the case for having a national story is you have to have a story about how we're all living here. So the idea that we dissolve into a, an internationalism with no identity, I don't think actually works. And that's why I think the idea of nation building is much more prominent on the left than it was 30 years ago, where people thought it would fade away. Thanks, John. And Sander, before we go around again, and a lady's already caught my eye, but Sander, on the yeah. point on the floor. Yeah, I mean, my my parents came from India and Ireland, so I mean, I'm probably here because of colonisation somewhere along the line. But I don't think I don't think I've colonised. I don't think I came and colonised this country. And in the end, I exist because of a history that happened. This country yeah. has a history that happened. It might be good, it might be bad, it might be painful, it might be excellent, but it happened. And you can't strip it out now and ethnically cleanse it and pretend it didn't happen. And there were always projects to do that. And the world's worst prediction ever, go back to cricket, was the uh, chair of the Indian Congress Party. It was the eve of Indian independence. And he said, and now the British are finally going and take away with you cricket, this English <laughs> game. It was never suited to an Indian climate with your village greens. Our young people will play honest Indian games like Kabaddi. And, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't right. But we could take away cricket and we could give yeah. back tea and we could have no curry and we could just put it all back. But, you know, I don't like what would people like me do? So we can't do that if only for people like me. So um, I'd like to then find the shared history in that, and the shared history of the First World War and the Second World War will surprise people, and that's good. But I'd like to talk about the future. The past might help us talk about the future. But the idea that national identity has disappeared, I mean, it's really, really, really important to 80 or 90% of people, and it's really not important at all to 5% of people. And the 5% of people to it's not important at all 
have no problems at all about the type of society they live in and you know their ability to cross borders, etc. But there were people like that, you know, in places like Sarajevo, who wanted to be the sort of people who national identity didn't matter to, and it really mattered, didn't it? So actually, having a national identity that protects these values, and not as uh, as I was saying earlier, having one that then collapses and fragments into something that can't do that anymore, is actually the foundation on which your liberal freedoms depend. Okay, great, Sunder. We've got a lady at the back, and we've got a gentleman here, and I'm looking around here, I'm looking around here, I've got that gentleman. They're going to be pretty quick. And you're, but you're going to remember to tell me who you are in a nice loud voice. Hi, I'm Peggy. I'm Finland, yes. I was kind of thinking about the stagnation of the society because what that gentleman over said, over there said about people feeling resentful that people come over and take those jobs. But what I gather in UK, it's very hard if you're very poor to actually get ahead in the society as an English person. So I do have a sympathy. And why am I here? If somebody said I was invited, well, I was recruited to come here because there wasn't enough people in the yeah. UK. So there's a lot of uh, competition or problem with people who come in who have jobs and then you have people who haven't got jobs. There needs to be something done about people who have really hard time getting ahead in the UK who are born here. Yeah. So I think that's one of the reasons why we have such a big problem with the immigrants. And also, there is not enough Discussion what immigrants actually serve in the country. If I think where I work, if we all went away, we would have a very empty NHS. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Right, okay. We got it. We got it. Thank you very much. Uh, sir, and then there was who is it put their hand up? Yeah, sir. Um, my name's Kieran. I'm Scott, working and living in London now. Um, I think part of the problem with trying to define one nation is that we're taking a very narrow and insular view of it, and it would be easier to think about what makes us British if we try and look at Britain in a more international context. So where do we sit in the European Union, for example, or within the UN or NATO or the G8? How do we act as a, as a single nation in Britain within these international organisations? Because it's very difficult once you're looking solely within Britain to say how do we define Britishness because as soon as you narrow it down to just being in Britain then you start saying well I'm Scottish or I'm Welsh or I'm North and so I think if we were to look at Britain within the wider global community we'd find much easier to define what makes us British Brilliant, okay great you you can go up but you also go down we're having one in autumn on on Britishness Scottish, Welsh, Irish as well as English Uh, Sir, I think this might be the last from the audience Um, uh, My name's Corey uh, I've heard people mention the word um, integration, I think we used to think of that. So I'm wondering what it means to be integrated beyond like, speaking a language or sports language. It's just so diverse, it's not static, it's moving. Um, like if you're, born in a, if you're living in a high the area, can you not be integrated? I'm not a Muslim, if you're Muslim, I'm sure you're not, can you not be integrated? Like, how do I know when I'm integrated? <laughs> <laughs> Right, okay. Asking questions. We'll see. We'll see. Sunder, I think this is going to be wrap-up, so we have a couple of minutes each. And now, we'll finish I have on. a publication you can read called The Integration Consensus, which <laughs> discovers... Which discovers exactly... No, but the frustration is, who's got to make the biggest move, them or us? What's it mean? How do you get there, etc.? What does multiculturalism mean? Does it mean it's a multi-ethnic society now, or does it mean we're going to break it all up? People who disagree about the meaning of these words actually agree on the stuff. How do we live together? What's the deal? Do we do it? Minorities, majorities, migrants actually agree on this stuff. And it goes, it goes like this. You do need a common language because you can't communicate without a common language. You need respect for the rule 
of law and you need respect for the freedom of speech of others and you've got to be willing to contribute and to put in. And the other half of the deal is that if you do that, there's no discrimination against you, against your children. There's equal opportunity. And if we say you're part of a club if you meet these rules to be part of the club, you're fully part of the club and it's a one-tier club. It's not a two-tier, three-tier club. We said you're part of us, you're not here. And British identity has been better at that, actually, I think, than some continental European identities because it was always a plural identity. It was always a civic identity for a multinational state. So it's been able to do that. If you describe that deal to people, and I did it and did groups on it and went to places like Elton about the scene Lance thing and did that and put it out as a poll, and 88% of people thought it was the right deal and 3% of people thought it didn't and it appealed to Liberal Democrats, it appealed to ethnic minorities it appealed to Muslims, it appealed to Christians it appealed, it appealed to 92% of UKIP voters and 85% of Liberal Democrats so I'll say that's a deal <laughs> And I agree with them I mean that, that seems to me to be a deal that most of us could go along with um, in my view being integrated is being comfortable it doesn't mean that you are turning into something you're not it just means that you're comfortable with the society you're, you're in and you are making your contribution to it. Two things, three things. America has been much better about immigrants, as you said, but one of the reasons is, not just because it's saying we're a nation of immigrants, but it also has the huge self-confidence to say as a nation and to believe that it's a wonderful country. Come along, you're welcome, and we are proud of it. And you are so lucky to be here. That's what America says to immigrants. And we haven't done enough, if I may be we, in the sense of a resident of this country. We have not done that enough. We should have been saying, welcome, you're, you are very lucky to be in this wonderful country. Instead of which, large... Uh, asp- I mean, there, there were a lot of people in the cultural establishment who were just running down Britain. Um, very interesting to do with the Scottish matter. Um, Alex Salmon was very pleased when he managed to uh, change the rules so 16 to 18 year olds could vote on Scottish independence because he thought that it was going to swing it for him. Mm-hmm. And a recent poll showed that they were less likely to vote for independence than any other age group because the young think globally. And I mean, I end up being very optimistic, really. We have a hell of a problem. I would like to see more of asking what, your, what you can do for your country than what your country can do for you, but I have a great belief in the cosmopolitanness of the young. I think they're remarkable. I think, they have, I think race just doesn't matter to them. Um, so much doesn't matter to them, and they look at a big world, and they look at a world of opportunity, and they're full of optimism, and I think that is wonderful. So... I end up being cheerful. I end up being cheerful. Uh, and John, final word before okay, I wrap up. Okay, uh, almost with the possibility of ending on a note of agreement with Ruth, it probably <laughs> is quite uh, unlikely about not doing enough. Let me just pick up the point that was made about by Curry about integration, because these the, the fundamental intellectual problem with integration, as it is often put, is the fact that it's moving. But if it stayed in one place, you could integrate with it. You could have that challenge. But it's changing by the very fact it's taking place. I was born into a a country that was deeply racist and homosexuality was illegal. So does that mean the fundamental British values are racist and anti-homosexual or do we prefer the ones in the society that we built today? So integration actually is is a myth, an illusion. You have no choice but to build a country together. Where I think Ruth is right is we haven't done enough. And it's an active process, which so I tried to end on at the very beginning. Ted Cantor, who did the report into the Northern Riots in 2001, who launched the term community cohesion on the world, 
And she had two ideas. One is we should stop actually being blind to the way that public policy can actually exacerbate divisions between communities that have already divided. But he actually said we also had to work together to identify our shared values. The first lesson was largely learnt. The second lesson was not acted upon. And it's not until we actually have sort of shown the way in the focus groups, but it's an action of millions of people, not of, of waiting for things to happen, those shared conversations that we work out what we agree on. And that will totally tell us, for example, that one of the things we understand as we share this country together, this is a country where most people will have more than one identity. English and British, or perhaps a minority identity and tradition with British or English, it will be a place where we are comfortable with being able to express more than one identity. And actually, that's something we shared. It's, it's something we value between us. It'll probably give us a shared value, to end up on the last point, that actually there's nothing quite wrong with actually looking at how you prioritise those local young people who might not otherwise get jobs. So I'll give you a Southampton example. The first act of the current government was to reduce the number of nurse training places in the city by about 100 a year, and now the General Hospital now recruits 48 Portuguese nurses, who will be excellent nurses, but something has slightly gone wrong there when you disconnect one bit of public policy. So we might actually develop a shared agreement, whether we're recent migrants or have been here for a very long time, that our society is stronger if we manage our public policy so that we give opportunities to young people from this country first, whilst welcoming the contribution of those that we need to come here because we can't otherwise do the job. So, but these things will not happen by waiting for somebody else to do it. So the One Nation challenge remains to be one. Do we want to be players or do we want to be spectators? Uh, look, that was great. I, I'm just going to wrap up from over here. Uh, what we're trying to do here is we're not trying to resolve the issues. We're having an ongoing dialogue. So this is, as I said, the third of a sequence. We're going to play with these ideas. We're going to take them to conferences. We're going to have uh, engagement. We're going to have faculty involvement. And we're trying to produce not a crude agenda for action or specifics how to integrate, but affect the culture that we've been talking about today. And I, I don't know. I've, I've organized a lot of events at LSE. I can tell you that over many years. And this was one of the highest quality in terms of the breadth of views from the platform and from yourselves. And uh, the economy and discipline of the speakers meant we got a lot from the floor. Thank you all for playing your part, both for coming in such enormous numbers in July and for participating by listening carefully and engaging. But thanks especially, I have to say, as we wrap up uh, 75 seconds late, for which many apologies... Uh, thank you especially to our platform, to Sunder, to Ruth and to John for having taken such care over the event and approached it with such seriousness, honesty and good humour. So thank you very much.